Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. 600 prisoners inside Arizona's Yuma State Prison Complex revolted on March 1st. They threw rocks and lit fires in order to drive guards out of the unit. One prisoner was killed during the fighting and 37 were injured. Damages are estimated at $500,000. Initial reports indicate the rebellion was against administrators' efforts to stoke racial tensions. Reuters reported that Japan's prisons are dealing with a burgeoning population of elderly people. The number of prisoners aged 60 or older has increased 7% from 10 years ago to over 9,000, and they constituted 19% of the whole prison population in Japan in 2016. In comparison, prisoners in that age bracket in the U.S. constitute 6% of the prison population. About 25% of Japanese inmates 65 and over end up back in prison within two years of their release. Of the people jailed in 2016, 30% of those above age 60 were in prison for at least the sixth time. That figure is much higher than the 16% for all people incarcerated that year. The next largest group, first-time offenders, accounted for 29% of the prisoners 60 and older. According to a professor at Tokyo Future University, young ex-prisoners are likely to find jobs. The lack of employment opportunities combined with the stigma of being an ex-convict makes reintegration difficult for the elderly. The Southern Poverty Law Center, along with the ACLU and two law firms, filed a class action lawsuit resulting in a trial that began on March 5th. The purpose of the trial is to end the mistreatment of prisoners in a for-profit Mississippi prison where 1,300 mentally ill inmates are housed. Inmates have had to resort to setting their cells on fire in order to obtain medical help. The suit alleges that prison officials have known for years of the hazardous conditions at the East Mississippi Correctional Facility, but failed to protect the inmates. The prison, operated by the Management and Training Corporation, is extremely violent, and the cells often lack working lights or toilets. Incarcerated people at risk of suicide undergo observation in the prison's infirmary for a few days and frequently end up in solitary confinement, which entails their spending 24 hours a day in a dark cell about the size of a bathroom. On March 2nd, demonstrators blocked traffic in the intersection in Seattle in front of the jail's administration's office. They are protesting against the construction of a new youth jail which they contend will disproportionately affect youth of color. In Indiana, both Muncie and Indianapolis are attempting to build new jails, leading to grassroots opposition in both cities. This week, we speak with Victoria Law, a freelance journalist, mother of a New York City high school student, author of the book Resistance Behind Bars, and the co-author of the forthcoming book Your Home is Your Prison. She's also the editor of Tenacious, a journal of art and writing by incarcerated women. Law starts by telling us why she's devoted so much research to the subject of prison, and specifically women in prison. She then walks us through different topics, such as women rioting and resisting while on the inside, the shackling of women during pregnancy and labor, and some of the challenges specific to incarcerated women, and how it affects their ability to resist and organize behind the prison walls. Here she is. When I was in high school, I went to what would now be called a school-to-prison pipeline school, but at the time that I was going to high school, they did not have any such terminology. It was just the kind of school where there were metal detectors, where there were security guards, where there were those like x-ray things that you put your bags through, 
and it was mostly black and brown and immigrant students, people who had social capital and could lie about their addresses did so so their kids would not be sent to that school. And it was the perfect recruiting ground for gangs. So my friends joined gangs, they dropped out of school, they got arrested for gang-related activity, uh, and they got sent to Rikers Island. And for listeners who don't know what Rikers Island is, it is an island devoted to jail, which means that most of the nearly 9,000 people incarcerated at Rikers Island are there awaiting trial. They have not been convicted yet. They've simply been arrested. They can't afford bail. They're sitting on this island, you know, which is 10 buildings of jails. And that was my introduction to jails and prisons and incarceration. So I would go visit them every week. I would take get up really early, take the bus across this long bridge to Rikers Island, sit around in a waiting room. And for listeners who have never been to visit a jail or a prison, particularly a jail, they take all your stuff and they put it in a locker or they make you put it in a locker. But you don't get to keep any of your stuff while you're in the waiting room the way you would say in a doctor's office or a dentist's office. So you sit there with nothing but yourself and all these people around you for hours on end. And what you end up doing, at least the women who are coming to visit their loved ones and me, is that you start talking to each other and you say, who are you here to see? You know, what is he in for? And they start sharing parts of their lives. And again and again, what I was seeing was that it was people who were black, brown, and immigrant, people who had very little resources, people who often were struggling with substance use issues, and who didn't have other opportunities to survive and thrive in this society. Nobody was there because they were Jeffrey Dahmer. Nobody was there because they were like swindling, you know, loads of people out of their pensions or anything else like that. They were all there for acts and crimes that would not have happened had they had more resources and more opportunities to address what was going on with them. So that began my interest in incarceration issues. And I started reading books about prisons and what was then beginning to be known as the prison industrial complex. And everything I read corresponded with the reality I was seeing every week at Rikers Island. Fast forward a few years later, I'm in college. I decided to do a political science project on what prison resistance looks like post-1970s. What happens after COINTELPRO decimates the movements? What happens when you no longer have these inside-outside social justice connections? And at the end of the semester, I looked at what I had gathered and realized, with maybe one exception, it was all men. And I thought, this is kind of weird. You know, there were 90,000-something women in prison at the time. And I thought, what are women doing? This seems not to add up. So I started asking people, I said, you know, what are women doing? And again and again, even people who had been active in prisoner rights struggles for decades, people told me, well, women don't resist, women don't network, women don't organize. And it seems really strange that 90,000 plus women or people in women's jails and prisons would be sitting on their hands doing nothing. I mentioned this to my professor, just sort of in passing at the time I was eight, eight and a half months pregnant. I was not thinking I was going to do any other research around this. I was thinking, I wasn't thinking of doing anything other than having my baby. And she said to me, well, this is what you're going to do next semester. And I said, mm, don't think so. You know, I am going to have a baby. I don't have time to delve into this. Nobody else is writing about this or researching this or talking about this. So this is all, at least in my mind, uncharted territory. And she said, and here I just want to give props because my professor is Jean Theo Harris, who does a lot of work around civil rights history and like the myths around civil rights history. She said to me, I will do what it takes to support you so we can meet when it's convenient for you. 
you know, we can meet where it's convenient for you. You don't have to schlep the hour, hour and a half into Brooklyn College on a regular basis. You can bring the baby with you. I will hold your baby. The only thing you cannot slack on is the scholarship. Everything else will work. And so that was what started my project of what are women doing to resist and organize? The first thing I did was I threw out everything I thought I knew about prison resistance. So I wasn't like, what are women doing around hunger strike? But what are the issues facing women in prison? And that was when I realized that if your issues are things like parenting and reproductive health care and pregnancy, your organizing and resistance might look different than if they are, you know, like the right not to be paid pennies per hour for your labor. Because maybe you don't want to piss the prison administration off when you're trying to like allow them to have more programs in which you can be reunified with your kids. Or if you're trying to force foster care agencies to bring your children to come visit you in the jail or the prison, like there's a very different way of doing it. Which is not to say that women didn't riot and resist. In my book, I talk about a 1970s riot in California where somebody thought it would be a good idea to cancel the Christmas visit at the women's prison. I don't know why. Maybe nobody wanted to work that day. But what ended up happening was the women rioted. They took over parts of the housing unit. They dragged Christmas trees that were on each housing unit into the yard and set them on fire. <laughs> they broke windows. They refused to come in out of the yard. It was a big mess, you know. So they have rioted when access to their children has been cut off, but oftentimes they might be doing other things like reaching out to lawyers, reaching out to advocates, saying, how do we change these policies? How do we change these laws? And these are ways in which people are not necessarily, they're not headline grabbing. The New York Times is not going to have a front page story that says, you know, women meet with lawmakers and, you know, magically change laws, you know, around access to children in the same way that they would if, say for Attica, where it's like prison yard taken over, held for four days. These are the demands. In women's prisons, what I've noticed is there didn't seem to be the same continuity around prison histories and histories of resistance and struggle, the ways that we talked about yesterday with men's prisons. And this might be in part because until the late 1980s, early 1990s, when there really were the war on drugs policies and prosecutions and sentencing taking place, women weren't serving these like ultra long sentences, which meant that there wasn't this continuity and this passing down of like, hey, in the prison I was in three years ago, we did this. Like I knew about the Christmas tree riot because I found a mention of it. And years later, I met a woman who had participated in the riot. But it wasn't like that was institutional knowledge. So if you talk to women who are currently in that prison, they'd be like, what Christmas tree? You know, what Christmas riot? So there's not that same handing down of like, here's a history or a history of resistance. And then again, at the same time, I think that there are different issues that women are organizing around, so it looks different. So for instance, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, people started organizing around the shackling of women during pregnancy. This was something that women had been fighting around for years and years and years. This wasn't a new issue, but it started to come to a head because people were getting out. They were talking about their experiences being shackled and for listeners who don't know what shackling is, it's when you are fully restrained. So that includes a pair of handcuffs that handcuff you connected to a chain that leads to a belly chain. And for listeners who ride bicycles, imagine that belly chain as being as heavy as a bike chain. And then there's another chain from that belly chain to your feet, which are manacled together as well. So this is a really difficult way to move around for anybody, let alone somebody who has a huge belly and might not be so steady and, and balanced on their feet because they are pregnant. 
in many states, including New York, including Washington State, including Oklahoma, I don't know about Indiana, there's also something called a black box attached to your heavy belly chain, which the sole purpose of the black box is to pull the handcuffs towards your belly chain so you have about two inches to move your hand. So should you trip, you don't have a lot of room to catch your fall. You basically end up falling on yourself. And until 1999, no state had a law, as in, you know, like this is a law, you must follow it, that said that prison and jail staff could not shackle pregnant people during labor and delivery, which then meant that a lot of times people ended up being shackled up until they were ready to push their baby out, sometimes like while they were in active labor. In many cases, including this past January in North Carolina, mind you, so this is not a relic of the past, medical personnel would say to the prison guards, you need to take these shackles off because this is impeding our ability to provide medical treatment. We need to be able to examine the person. We need this person to be able to move around. This is actually a danger to both the mother and the fetus. In many cases, including twice on two separate occasions of two different people giving birth in January in North Carolina, prison staff refused. So this is something that women were organizing around. In Massachusetts, they sued in 1985. People have brought individual complaints. And in 1999, a group of formerly incarcerated women really pushed for Illinois to pass a law banning shackling because they said, you know, policy is not enough. Nobody gets penalized for disregarding policy. There's no teeth to it. Like there needs to be an actual law that protects this as one of our fundamental human rights. It's not a form of organizing that necessarily grabs people's attention and it definitely doesn't get categorized for the most part as prison organizing because when most people think of prisons because about 90 to 95% of prisons are male prisons and male jails so they don't think of pregnancy as a prison issue but then if we widen what we think of as prison issues then we widen what we think of as resistance and we should be looking at other forms of resistance that might be quieter. Writing letters with your story may not necessarily grab people's attention, but it's just as important because we wouldn't know about these things unless people were actively speaking out about this. Like women could otherwise be just suffering in silence, you know, and thinking like this was the worst experience of my life, but I never talk about it and therefore nobody knows. And then there's no galvanizing people to action to change these kinds of things. Different people in different states have figured out different ways to get laws passed and sometimes not passed and sometimes not so successfully. But in Illinois, it was largely formerly incarcerated women who were out, who were learning how to organize on the outside. So they might have been organizers inside and they were now outside and learning you know, what political organizing on the outside might look like. And again and again, they said, you know, this is the thing that we really want to change. This is what needs to happen. And so what they did was they started contacting legislators. They started sharing their stories. They started saying like, this is what happened to me. This is what happened to her. You know, we need to do something about that. So that was very much sharing stories, storytelling, building public awareness and building public outrage about this practice because people didn't know that this was happening. Lawmakers didn't know this was happening. In other cases, it was women who were inside who were saying like, we have been shackled and we want this practice to stop. In Massachusetts, sometime in the 1980s, women incarcerated in Massachusetts wrote letters to different law firms saying like, we want this practice to stop. And they managed to find a law firm that said, we will take on this issue, you know, and 
sued the Department of Corrections to try to stop this issue. Fast forward to 2010, 2011, around that period of time. In the meantime, between 19, the 1980s and that period of time, there's no law still up to the individual discretion of the prison officer. You know, if there's a policy, it's very easy to disregard. Where formerly incarcerated women are pushing this issue, and they've been pushing the issue for 10 years, but they finally catch the attention of some lawmakers and the local ACLU, which has enough political clout and muscle to kind of like push this through in a way that had not been so possible when it was formerly incarcerated women telling their stories. So it depends, I think, on place and time as well. Like in North Carolina, there is no law. There is simply a policy that was drafted in 2015 that said, thou shalt not shackle a person when they're in labor and delivery. And this past January, on two separate occasions, women were brought to the local hospital to give birth and healthcare workers said, you have to take off these restraints. And the guard said, no. And they said, well, according to this policy, you do because they're in labor. And they said, well, we define labor as pushing. She's not pushing yet. And then they called the supervisor and the prison supervisor. And the prison supervisor was like, yeah, we go with what the guard says. And so that then meant that the ultimate decision around medical care rests with the guard who is not trained in any sort of medical care and really should not have been the person to make that decision. There have been numerous instances, and there are probably more than the few that we hear about, in which women go into labor or have some pregnancy-related complication and are trying to get the guards to allow them to see a medical provider, whether it's inside the jail or the prison or outside, and the guards refuse. There was a case in Texas a few years ago in which a woman was, she was having pregnancy-related complications and she told the guards and they refused to deal with her. They refused to let her see medical. They locked her in a holding cell. A holding cell is a cell in that jail was a cell that did not have running water or a toilet where she then miscarried. So she was in this holding cell and people were passing her holding cell, you know, so there were numerous people who could have perhaps tried to intervene in this and did not. And she ended up miscarrying in this holding cell with just like a mattress on the floor rather than the guards just saying, okay, we'll take you to the jail clinic, you know, where a medical provider could have said, you need to go to the hospital right now. Um, like, so this was a very clear, preventable miscarriage. And there have been numerous instances in which people have come forward and said, this is also what happened to me. Like, I was having labor pains, I was having this, I was having that, and the guards did not take me seriously, and therefore, I could not see the medical provider and get this checked out. Oftentimes, when a woman goes to prison, she doesn't have that same support system and that same family support that a cisgender man going to prison does. So whereas when you go to go visit a men's jail or a men's prison, oftentimes it's packed. You wait a long time in line. You know, the visiting room is fairly full. When you go to a women's jail or a women's prison, it's a lot less packed. There aren't as many people coming up. They may not have family that who they are in touch with, or they might come from chaotic, violent, and or abusive 
families whom they have cut off ties with. Families may also not have the financial resources to go visit, especially in states where there is only one women's prison, which might be located in a really far away place in the urban area where most people who are sent to prison come from. So for example, in California, there are two women's prisons, one of which is in Corona, which is fairly close to Los Angeles, and the other one is in Chowchilla, which is in the middle of California and really difficult to get to. In New York State, there are two women's prisons that are fairly close to New York City. You can take the Metro North, which is a train, like an hour and a half, and then you take a $5 cab ride to the prison. But if your loved one is sent to Albion, which is right by the Canadian border, most likely you are not going to be able to go visit very frequently because that is a long car ride if you own a vehicle, a long bus ride, which you know nobody wants to do with small children, Plus, because it is so far away, it is also a motel stay overnight. Plus, whatever food you have to buy during that motel stay. Plus, whatever other things you have to buy during the course of the visit, like snacks and photos and everything else. So it's a huge expense. So a lot of times, people in women's prisons don't get that same level of family support than men in prison do to begin with. From what I've heard from various women in prison oftentimes and again maybe this is a self-selecting group because the people I talk to definitely have done organizing and resistance they'll also extend their for lack of a better term family protection to other women like there was one woman in New York State who would actually ask her mom to call the prison on behalf of other women who are being targeted like she'd like talk to her on the phone and be like mom mom like you know call and ask about Karen Longwood you know because Karen Longwood is being targeted and she doesn't have family that can, you know, that can call and advocate on her behalf. So there have also been ways in which women have extended that. In the federal prison in Florida, there was a woman who was using the e-messaging system to send out just these one-page observations on prison life. And then one of her supporters would post this on a blog so that everybody could read it. So there would be things like there was a accreditation visits. And on that day, everybody got shrimp. Like they were like these like shrimp. They were tiny microscopic plankton like shrimp. But people like who'd been in prison for like 16 years were like, oh my God, shrimp. You know, like and people were really excited. And then she's like, and then the accreditation people went away. And the next day it was back to the usual stuff. Or she would talk about like the fact that the mattresses were like old and saggy and for people with health issues or people who are older, these were not good. Or So they, these were not necessarily damning indictments of the prison system, but they were observations on all the daily ways in which prisons just break people down. And in the federal prison system, there's something called the furlough where you can go for seven hours and you are allowed out of the prison for seven hours up to a weekend to spend time with your family and then you go back to the prison and so she was up for a furlough she gets called into an administrator's office and they say i've been reading your e-messages and while we don't have a problem with you sharing your prison experiences we really wish you would write something more cheerful about the prison why don't you show the positive sides of the prison and she said you know well mr administrator you know, there's so many bad things about this prison. I feel like people should know that this is what's happening. And they said, Miss Guanipo, we realize you have a furlough coming up. Wouldn't you like to have your furlough and be able to spend the weekend with your children, one of whom was only 11 months old when you went to prison? And she's like, oh. So she wrote an e-message to everybody that said, you know, this is what happened. This was the exchange. I am committed to continuing to talk about 
what is happening in the prison. However, my family comes first. It was the prison administrators that said, we know how much it means to you after spending a decade in prison to be able to go home, tuck your kids into bed, read them stories, make pancakes with them in the morning, whatever you do. And all we ask for in return is if you write about this prison, to write about the more positive aspects. So there are a number of federal women's prisons across the country. The exact number escapes me right now. But people in federal prison, whether they're men, women, trans, however they identify as genders, can be moved to wherever, whenever the prison administration deems that they can be moved. And the conditions there range from not as bad to truly atrocious. And it also depends on the individual administrators. So there is a federal women's prison in Dublin, California, just outside the Bay Area. There still are a large number of Native American women incarcerated in that prison. And for a long time, they were able to do their programs. They were able to do their sweat lodges. The poet Christos was able to come in and do workshops with them before the prison administrators realized who she was. And there is now a new administrator there that said, I don't want some of these things. Like there's some ceremony in which you make your ceremonial regalia and there are beads, there's like weaving. It's a very intricate process. And people do this, their family members send in pieces and the assistant warden decided that this was now a security risk, even though these ceremonies had been going on for over 20 years with no problems. And so the women watched when all of their regalia and all of these artifacts and were put into garbage bags and they were not allowed. They, the warden said they could have their ceremony, but not with this very crucial element to it. It's at the whim of the administrator. In addition, people who complain or protest can also be sent not just to like a, another prison in some other part of the state, but clear across the country. So you could be in California and say your family is in California near you and able to come visit you. And then you could be transferred to Alderson, West Virginia because they decided to do so. And there doesn't necessarily have to be a reason either. So there are many women who say, my family is in the Midwest. I'm incarcerated in Florida. They can't afford to come travel here to come see me. So I haven't seen them in over a decade. So there is that as well. And then a lot of women are serving lengthy, if not life sentences, due in large part to the war on drugs and federal conspiracy charges and convictions in which people who have the least amount of knowledge are often held the most responsible because they don't have information to trade for lesser sentences. In some places, there is that passing down of history and history that doesn't happen necessarily in the state system. Again, there are also different ways of protesting. Like for last year's International Women's Day and Women's Strike, women in federal prison didn't launch an all-out women's strike because everybody would have been thrown in the hole. So instead, what they did was everybody wore red lipstick, you know, which is like, you know, like might not seem like such a big deal on the outside. Like, so what, everybody wore red lipstick. But that meant that anybody who had red lipstick was sharing it with everybody else. Everybody figured out a way to put a little bit of red into their uniform that day. Like they were like, all right, here's our show of solidarity. If we sit down and we refuse to work, we're all getting thrown in the hole. For people who have the better paying jobs at the federal prison system, they probably don't want to lose those. Also because going back to the family support issue, they don't necessarily have family able to put money on their books. So the little bit of money they get is from working these like dollar a day 
$3 a day prison jobs where they're like, okay, with $3 a day, I can buy soap, I can buy tampons, and I can call my kids once a week. If I lose that job and I go back to buffing floors for eight cents an hour, I can maybe buy soap or I can buy tampons or I can call my kids. That's it. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.